Well, good afternoon. Good to see all you guys. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. Let's just get, uh, let's just talk about the elephant in the room real quick. Uh, who is this guy? Who am I? Some of you are like, I've been here for two to three months and I've never seen this person before in my life. Is that James? Did he get a haircut? Uh, no, it's not. My name is Jesse. I actually do go here. In fact, I actually work here. Um, but I had long COVID, so I haven't gotten, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, the church graciously gave me a sabbatical for three months. So I've been gone for a while. And honestly, it was a really good time. People are like, how was the sabbatical? Was it good to rest? And I'm like, yeah, dude, I was like not working for three months. Felt really good. We were able to spend time together as a family. We went on a road trip uh, to the West Coast. And it was really good for me and my kids and me and my wife to just spend that quality time together. Uh, and there were other things that I was able to do, uh, read a little bit and spend some time with some other people in ministry, some older pastors. I got some advice um, and visit other churches. And that was an interesting experience. I think on the one hand, it was really a blessing for me to be able to uh, be ministered to and to see kind of what other churches are doing and to learn from them. Um, but honestly, after a couple of weeks, um, even though I didn't miss the work necessarily, I honestly missed this church um, because I didn't have to sign in, right, or give my information every time. No, we were talking about it, me and Christine, and just being in a place where you know that this is your church family, where you know people, they know you, that's something that we really missed almost from the beginning. So we were really looking forward to coming back to church. Uh, so last week was perfect because I didn't have to preach, but I could come to Zoe, and it was just chef's kiss. Anyway, I don't just say that. It's good to be back, and hopefully the feeling's mutual. If not, uh, you don't have to tell me. Let's just keep the good feelings going. Um, but if I haven't met you yet, I'd love to meet you. Uh, I'll be around for the foreseeable future, at least five years. Uh, okay, enough about me. I felt like I had to say something about it. Um, but if you could open your Bibles to Second Samuel, we're continuing our regularly scheduled programming. Uh, Eric and James just carried on with Second Samuel, and uh, they did a great job. I'm really thankful for them and their faithfulness. Today, we are in Second Samuel chapter 11. And if you know this chapter at all, you know that it's kind of an interesting chapter to come back to. Second Samuel 11. Uh, it's an interesting chapter overall. On the one hand, it's one of the most shocking events in all the Bible. All right, where you see this guy fall. It's a dramatic, moral nosedive for someone we've come to know as a man after God's own heart. But on the other hand, let's be real. 2 Samuel 11, which tells the story of David and Bathsheba, is also one of the most well-known passages about David. So it's shocking objectively, but subjectively not so much. Most of us know what happens. We're familiar with it. It's one of the main stories we know about David. So since it's familiar, and since it's a long passage, we're not going to read it all up front. Normally, that's what we, we would do. We would read the passage, and we'd pray, and then we'd get into it. Um, but today, what we're usually, uh, what we're going to do instead is we're going to read it as we go along. Okay, so kind of my hope is that it'll kind of trick us into paying attention to the narrative in a different way. We'll watch it unfold in real time, and I hope you can experience it a little bit like you never heard it before. And if you never heard it before, then that's, that's great then it'll work out. So 2 Samuel 11, let me pray, and then we'll get into it. 2 Samuel 11, let's pray together. 
Father, we come before you, and as we sang, you are a holy God. God, and we admit, we confess, God, that we often don't really think about what that means. God, we can be flippant with you, with the words that we say about you, with the heart attitudes that we bring before you, and how we approach your word even. But God, I pray that as we sit under your word this afternoon, God, that we would be struck again by your holiness, by how different and infinitely above us you are, how great you are. And God, I pray ultimately that that will lead us to worship and to love, but I pray first, God, that we would have a proper fear of you, that we would know that you are not a safe God, And God, I pray that you would minister to our hearts during this time. God, we need your Holy Spirit. I know I do. God, it's been a while since I've done this, as you know. So I pray, Father, for your blessing, your grace, and your help. God, we look to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Whenever someone does something truly horrific, something actually despicable and terrible, scams people, you know, old people or something out of their money. No offense to any old people. I know Eric was like offending old people left and right when I was gone. Or maybe someone physically hurts the defenseless or the weak. Or maybe someone betrays the trust of someone who is completely and utterly loyal. What is the question we inevitably always end up asking eventually? How did this happen? We want to know how this happened. We want to figure it out. Some of you remember that it was on this day, but on Valentine's Day 2018, no one in America was thinking about romance. People might have been out for dinner or whatnot, but every news station, every television was turned to the news about what was happening in Parkland, Florida. Nicholas Cruz, a 19-year-old, opened fire at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, killing 17 and wounding 17 others in one of the deadliest school shootings in history. Now, we live in an age where, unfortunately, mass shootings are common. We hear about them all the time. And while each one is objectively beyond horrific, the reality is, I think a lot of people nowadays are a little numb. They can all blend together in our heads. We see kind of the same things over and over and over. We see crying victims and their families. We see responders. We see politicians giving talking points. We see all these different things, fingers pointed every which way. But always what happens is the tension turns from the victims to the perpetrator, to the shooter. And we learn about the troubled family history. We hear about the bullying, the disturbing posts online. Maybe they even uncover a manifesto or a video that the person recorded earlier talking about their motives. But all of it, if you think about it, all of it is to answer the question, how did this happen? Correct? Nicholas Cruz was not an exception to the sadly familiar script. He was bullied. You might not remember this, but he was bullied. He came from a difficult family situation. He posted violent things on the internet before. It checked out. It made sense. But there is one thing that sets apart Parkland, Florida, and Nicholas Cruz from a lot of the other things we've seen in the news in the past few years. Do you know what that is? If you've been following the news recently, maybe you do know 
Nicholas Cruz, unlike many of the shooters, was actually brought in alive. Now, we'll come back to that at the end. But I start here with this, and it's kind of serious and sobering, I know, but I start here with this event and this person, not for shock value, but by way of contrast and comparison. I bring it up so that you would see this, and you'd be able to look at our passage in a different way. See, when truly detestable crimes like these, like mass shootings or something like that happen, it's easy to think to ourselves, it's easy to picture He had to have been a monster. We want to find out all the red flags. We want to see all the things that could have transformed a normal kid into somebody who would do something totally horrific like that. And on the surface, at least, Nicholas Cruz confirms that suspicion. He has all the red flags that turn an innocent kid into a monster. But we're in 2 Samuel 11. What happens when it's not someone like Nicholas Cruz. What happens when it's someone who has none of the red flags? What happens when it's the last person you would expect? See, here's the thing. Right now, we've opened our Bibles to a chapter in the Bible that's famous because someone does something truly detestable. He does something wicked and evil on so many levels. Adultery, yeah, but also murder, also betrayal, also lies. You would think that if it's a king, it would be a pagan king, a king who fancied himself a god with unlimited power, a monster with no morals, but no. This king is the king who was positioned as someone who was better than every other king. It was the shepherd boy turned king, the poet who wrote so many of the songs of worship we still love today. It's David, the man after God's own heart. And today, what we're gonna do as we're going to take a dive into this cognitive dissonance. How could 2 Samuel even tell a story like this? This is an important chapter in the Bible. Not that the other chapters aren't important. They're all equally important in their own ways. But more than most, this chapter answers the question that we inevitably always ask when evil breaks into our world. How does this happen? And it doesn't necessarily need to be a school shooting or an ancient king swooping in to steal your wife. On some level, we've all been affected. And this answers our questions too in our own ways, our own personal ways. How could that spiritual hero of mine, I read his books, I listened to uh, sermons that he gave, he saved my faith. How could he be guilty of that? I'm sure you've been wrong before in church, let down by pastors, let down by small group leaders, let down by someone you thought was your brother or sister in Christ, your friend. Maybe some of us, we grew up in church. We thought bad people are out there, right? I don't do that kind of stuff, right? I've been a good boy, a good girl, but it's been 20 years now, 30 years, 40 years. And we look back over our lives and we think, how could I have done some of those things? I mean, you're shocked even to think about yourself in your own life. How could I have done that, that, and that in my life? How could it be the same person? So it's not going to be pleasant necessarily today. You know, it's kind of funny is that this is my first passage coming back, but this is actually the first passage I ever preached on a Sunday in church. I don't know what's up with those elders giving me this, but anyway, it's not going to be pleasant necessarily, but this chapter, if any chapter in the Bible, tells us exactly how this happens. So as we do, we'll look at this text in three parts. First, the fall. The fall. 
This is about how the worst of things can easily start off innocent enough. Look at verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. The scene is being set in this first verse. Notice, first of all, the time. It's spring. Now, in the Hebrew, it doesn't exactly say it's spring. It actually says it's been a year. But springtime was when ancient Near Eastern kings and armies would go out to battle. The weather was better in that region of the world, less rain. So this is when people would fight. So it's been about a year since the last war in 2 Samuel chapter 10. It's the time when you go out to battle. They're still at war with Ammon. Last year, David had won a great victory, but that was last year. Now we're in this year. And if you look at the text, it says, at the time when kings typically lead their armies into battle, what does David do? David goes out to fight. No, it says that David sent Joab. David sent his servants. David sent all Israel. But who does not go? David doesn't go. Kings usually go out to fight, but the king stays in Jerusalem. Right away, the text is setting us up with this strong contrast. You know, something's up Hold on to that thought for a moment. Look at verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. David, he's relaxing in the palace. Everyone else is fighting. He's chilling. It's the afternoon. He goes up onto the roof where he can feel the cool Mediterranean breeze blowing in from the sea. And you got to understand something just about the setup. We might not picture it correctly, but Jerusalem is a city on a hill. That's what Jesus said. You are a city on a hill. Jerusalem was a city on a hill. So everywhere you are, you're either looking up or you're looking down. Are you looking up to where the temple is and where the palace is? Or if you're David and you're the king, you're looking down at everyone else. You can see what most people can see. And not only is he in the palace, but he's on the roof. And today, David walking up there happens to see a beautiful woman bathing. One word, temptation. And David sent, verse 3, and David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, David could have looked away. In fact, I think it's important that we understand this. He could have put it out of his mind, and he would have dodged a bullet. But instead, he does the opposite. He fans the flame of his curiosity. He wants to find out who she is. Now, take a step back for a second. If you've ever talked to someone who struggles with lust, let's say, or maybe you have, you know that it's not a sin to notice that someone is attractive. The Bible never says that that is a sin, to see someone and think that they are beautiful. It's not even necessarily a sin to accidentally stumble into something you shouldn't see. But turn with me to James chapter 1. Keep your place here, but I want to show you this real quick. James 1. You need to understand how this happens a little. James 1, toward the end of the New Testament, after the book of Hebrews. Look at verse 14. James 1, 14. I'll wait till you guys get there. James 1, 14. The apostle James, he's talking about temptation, and this is what he says in verse 14. But each person is tempted 
when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Verse 15, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There is a distinction between desire and sin. Now, there's a connection, definitely. Don't get me wrong, but there is a distinction. It's not necessarily wrong for David to maybe want something he shouldn't want for a second. But did he or did he not get enticed by his own desire? Did he or did he not pursue the thought? What do we see in verse 3? You can turn back there. What do we see in verse 3? David saw her. She was very beautiful. Did he turn away? No, he asked about who she is. The thought is in his mind. He's thinking about it. He's thinking about her and the path to disaster. It starts with all these seemingly innocent steps. Is it a sin for him not to go to war? Not necessarily. He should, but it's not a sin to send your general to war. Is it a sin to ask someone's identity? Technically, it's not. But you can see how he's on the wrong path. His momentum is carrying him the wrong way. Now, side note real quick. Some people argue Bathsheba was trying to tempt him. That's not in the text. If you actually read the text, why is she bathing? Because she's trying to purify herself from her uncleanness. What is the text telling us? It's making a point to say that she cares about the law. She cares about pleasing God and doing the right thing. Does it say that she was bathing on the roof? It actually says that she was just bathing probably in the most private place in her house where no one who's walking around could see, just one random person who might be way high up could see you. She probably thought David was out to war, maybe. He's not there. Nothing is going on with Bathsheba at this point. As the Apostle James says, temptation, it happens when we are enticed by our own desire. The wheels are in motion because the temptation has already started spinning in his own heart. Verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her. Pay attention to the verbs here. He took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Not they lay together. He lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And there you go. So understated. But for David, this is shocking. This is literally the worst thing that he has ever done in his life that we know of. This is, in some ways, and we'll see this in a little bit, worse than anything Saul ever did, the king who he, uh, whom he replaced. And it's not just that he would so easily break the commandment of God, do not commit adultery, the seventh commandment. What really is shocking here is that he's so callous about it. See, what word is at the beginning of verse 4? Do you see it? If you have the ESV, it says so. If you have like the NIV or NASB, it might say then. But the point is, in the Hebrew, verse 3 and verse 4 are connected. And how does verse 3 end? Look again at your text. How does verse 3 end? David asked about Bathsheba. He wants to know who she is. And what does a servant say, some random servant say? "Uh, Isn't that uh, Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam? Isn't that the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now to us, that might not mean a lot. Maybe we know those names because of this story. But to David, that should have been a clear indication to drop it right then and there. Because who is Uriah? Last week, uh, last week um, Eric was talking about David's mighty men. He's saying that's a pretty cool thing in the Bible. You can read about it in Chronicles and in 2 Samuel 23. David had these elite warriors, these spiritual uh, heroes in Israel who would fight these battles and who trusted in God and won all these victories, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. If you look at the actual list of mighty men, there's only a few dozen of them. Guess who is in that list? Uriah. 
And the mighty men, you got to understand, they weren't just people who fought for God and country. That's cool. But these are the guys who were with David when no one else was. I mean, they not only were loyal to God and Israel, but they were loyal to David personally. And Uriah is one of them. And this is his wife. Secondly, who is Eliam? Eliam's not a big character in the Bible, but Eliam is Ahithophel's son. And Ahithophel, we read later, is one of David's most trusted advisors. So this is the granddaughter. Okay, so this just set off kind of your creepy alarm a little bit. But this is the granddaughter of one of your most trusted advisors and loyal friends. David hears who she is. And then verse 4 begins with the word, So David sent and took. Even though God, uh, excuse me, David sent and took. What is the text showing us? It's showing us that in this moment, even though he knows or should know better, he simply doesn't care. And this is what lust does. We're blinded because of what looks good in our eyes. Let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, you might know this story. Once upon a time, there was a man and a woman and they were married and uh, they had a perfect life, right? a perfect marriage, uh, perfect living situation, perfect job. Everything was perfect. But then one day, the wife started talking to a snake. Now you're like, okay, now I know the story. It sounded familiar, I thought. She starts talking to a snake. Her name is Eve. And the snake says, did God really say not to eat of that one tree in the middle of the garden, the fruit of that tree? And the conversation goes back and it goes forth, back and forth. The truth is God did say not to eat of that fruit. And there was a reason. If they ate of it, they would surely die. But what did Eve do? If you remember this story, what did Eve do? She looked and the fruit looked good to her. In her eyes, it seemed fine. And to her husband, it also looked good. And so, so they ate of it. Even though God said it would kill them, At that point, they simply didn't care. They were blinded by their desire. All they saw was something that looked good to them, and they wanted it for themselves, and they fell, and so did the world. A lot of parallels there with Adam and Eve and with David. And it reminds me of this old Oscar Wilde quote. You might have heard it before. But Oscar Wilde, not a saint by any means, but he said this once. He said, I can resist anything. I can resist anything except temptation. I can resist anything except temptation. See, the truth is no one falls into great sin out of the blue. The truth is everyone is susceptible to temptation. And there's two takeaways here right off the bat. First, one, David wasn't doing what he probably should have been doing. The text wants us to know that. If he had gone to battle as kings did at this time, he would have avoided the situation entirely. God is sovereign, but you understand the cause and effect here. It wasn't in of itself sinful for him to stay behind, but if he had been attentive to doing his best as a king, then he would have been on the battlefield, not on the roof. And there's a lesson for us here. Are we doing the things that we should be doing? Are you doing the things that you should be doing? One of the conversations that I always find myself in as a pastor, sometimes even with myself, is do you really have to, you know, like read the Bible every day? Do you have to have a quiet time? Do you need to pray? Do you need to come to church every Sunday? And the answer is technically, if you want to be a Christian, you don't have to. 
Right? Those things don't save you. But if you want to grow, if you want to have a vibrant relationship with God, if you want to guard yourself against temptation, the answer is you probably should be doing these things. But how many of us are slacking? And then we wonder why our marriage fell apart or why I fell into that thing or why I become so cold to God, etc., etc. It's not sinful to skip a day. It's not sinful to leave your Bible on the shelf one morning when you're busy. It's not sinful to pray only at mealtimes. I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you, but I am trying to warn you. The Bible has positioned David as being the best of us. And even David, when he slacks, is susceptible to these kind of things. Two, David was fixated on himself. Before he committed any sin, you can see that his focus is in the wrong place. This builds on the first. Maybe if he had been focused on his duty to God and to God's people, he wouldn't have been focused on himself. But no, his mind was on his own comfort and pleasure. Even in little ways, not wanting to go to battle, wanting to just go for a leisurely walk and just enjoy himself. And this is something to think about for us. What do you think about? When you're already thinking about yourself and, and wanting to feel good and wanting to have comfort, then when temptation strikes, it's a lot harder to say no. It becomes a continuation of kind of how we've been thinking already. And for a lot of us, if we were given the opportunity to sin in great ways, we might fall in a second. It's literally only our circumstances that that's keeping us from doing terrible things that would ruin our family, ruin this church, ruin our entire lives. Someone gave you a billion dollars. If you were able to pay off anyone who saw you, et cetera, et cetera. David stayed. David saw. David sent. David sinned. It could happen to anybody. And then verse 5. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And this leads to the second point, the focus. The focus. So first, the fall. David's fall is not that different than Adam and Eve's fall. Second, the focus, which is about the difference between character and reputation. See, when you're focused on people around you, when you're looking just horizontally at everyone else, you might miss out on what's actually important. Look at verse 5 again. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. The only words that we get from Bathsheba in this entire story. This is really focused on David and what he did. Let's put the pieces together for a second. You got to understand this. See, she was cleansing herself from her impurity. This meant that she cared about what the law of God said, but it also meant something biological. It meant that she was cleansing herself from that time of the month. Meaning that she wasn't pregnant when Uriah went off to war. Do you see what I'm saying? It's not Uriah's baby. And when she's a month or when she's late at that time of the month, again, she's like, I'm pregnant and it's got to be David. So verse 5, and it seems like David was just going to try and pretend nothing happened. He sent her back to her house. He wasn't trying to have an ongoing affair. He wasn't trying to steal her away from Uriah. But now he's in this bind 
because clearly she is pregnant by him. Uriah is going to find out. Everyone's going to find out. The people who looked up to David are going to find out. So what does he do? Verse 6, David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Now, you guys know the story already. Most of you know it. But if you've known David all this time, you got to think about how this is being set up to us, the reader. We've been reading about David, about how different he is. He's the kind of guy who weeps when his greatest enemy, Saul, is killed. You might even have fleeting hope for a moment that David is going to confess to Uriah right then and right there, right here. But if you look at verse 7, when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, and how the war was going. He's beating around the bush. Verse 8, then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. So he's saying, go home and wash up, and the plan comes into focus. What he's getting at is, relax. Just go home, act normal, spend time with your family. He wants Uriah to sleep with his wife so that Uriah and anyone who would notice that Bathsheba is pregnant in a couple months would think that the baby is Uriah's. This is not confession. This is cover-up. He even sends a present. There's just one problem with David's genius plan, okay? David wants to cover it up. He has the perfect way to do it. But Uriah is actually someone who has good character. Verse 9. But Uriah, another strong contrast, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said, Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Aren't you tired, man? Why did you not go down to your house? You can almost hear the nervousness in David's voice a little bit. Like, hey, man, don't you want to, you know, just make sure that you want, don't you want to impregnate your wife? Listen to Uriah's reason, verse 11. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel, and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? He got the message, okay? I don't don't think David was that subtle. As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. He's like, how could I do that? How could I do that when my brothers are out there fighting? It's so noble. You can almost just like laugh at how terrible this is. How can I relax when my brothers and the ark are out at war? I should be there. It's not right. And see, here's the thing. It's not like they would have found out. How would they know that he went home or slept outside the door of the king's house? They wouldn't know. He doesn't care about what people think. Do you see this? He cares about what is actually right. He doesn't care about how things look. He cares about what's real. You know, the other day, um, we were watching a cartoon. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I was watching it with my kids. And I have one daughter who's seven and another daughter who's three. And my three-year-old has started talking a lot. And when I say a lot, I mean a lot. She's talking like nonstop through this TV show. And I think it's kind of cute, but my other daughter does not really think it's that cute. But we were watching the show and this new character came on screen and my younger daughter is just talking. She's like, is that a good guy? No, it's a bad guy. Is it, Pepe, is that a bad guy? No, it's a good guy. Wait, wait, is that a bad guy? And this is just going on and on and on. She's like, oh, he left. He's a good guy. Oh, no, wait, no, he, he, he's, he's a bad guy. Wait, is he a good guy? And then she's like, shh, I don't even know. Okay, I don't even know who that guy is. I thought, I thought it was funny. I was like, I'm going to use this in a sermon for sure. 
But the thing is, what she was doing was, in the moment, she was trying to decide just by this guy's look if he was a good guy or a bad guy, by appearances. And the truth is, this is kind of what we have to do as people. If you remember 1 Samuel 16, what did God say to Samuel when they chose David as king over Saul? He says, God doesn't see like we do. We look at the what? The outward appearance. God looks at the heart. We are stuck. We are limited. We have to look at the outward appearance. We could be wrong. And this is why hypocrisy is a thing. Because some people are really good at pretending to fool all of us. But God isn't fooled. People since the fall have been trying to cover up whatever bad things they have done. And that's what David is doing here. He's focusing just on reputation, which is horizontal, which is human. And not focusing on character, which is vertical, which God can see, even if no one else can. John Wooden, the Hall of Fame basketball coach from UCLA, he once said, be more concerned with your character than your reputation. Character is what you really are. Did you hear that? What you really are. Reputation is just what people say you are. Reputation is often based on character, but not always. And isn't that the truth? And yet, what do we see here? We see a divergent path between Uriah and David. Normally, David is the good example when you contrast two people. But here, David only cares about reputation. Uriah cares about character. And there are so many contrasts about how things look on the surface versus how they really are. For example, Uriah on the surface, he disobeys the king. The king of Israel commanded him, go home, and he doesn't do it. On the surface, you would say, this guy is a disobedient, disloyal guy. But we know that under the surface, really what's motivating him is a higher calling to integrity, to do what is right. Uriah is also a Hittite, not the kind of person, he's not an Israelite. He's not the kind of person that you would think would care more about the people of Israel and the Ark of the Covenant. And yet, the reality is, David's only thinking about himself, and Uriah, this foreigner, is thinking about God and his people. On the surface, David seems to actually care. He's asking all these nice questions. He's giving a present. On the surface, he's such a generous king, but he's a snake. David cares about reputation. Uriah cares about character. And this is a problem because Uriah's character is going to be the downfall of David's reputation. Verse 12, then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord. But, again, another strong contrast, but he did not go down to his house. Someone once said that Uriah here is more honorable uh, drunk than David is sober. And again, it's a contrast between what things look like versus what they really are. Uriah gets drunk, which is a sin according to Scripture. What a lack of self-control, right? No, the text says what happened. David made him drunk. Uriah is just trying to get back to battle. David's making him stay. He's almost literally funneling wine down his throat. For all intents and purposes, this is David's fault. And it still doesn't work. Look at verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He knows it's not going to work keeping him here. This guy is too honorable. So he sends a letter, 
Verse 15, in the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be, he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of, some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So matter of fact, the question is how far Are you willing to go to protect your reputation? David, the answer is clear. It's this far. You're going to send one of your loyal servants, Death Note, in his own hand while he goes and fights a war for you. And he succeeds. Other servants also die, who probably wouldn't have died if David didn't command this. And it's all because David who messed up, is way more concerned about what things look like than how things actually are. And this is a fatal misunderstanding of what sin is. Sin is not about reputation, not primarily. Sin is about character. Sin is is not about what people see or know primarily. Sin is about who you really are before a holy God. And this leads to the final point. But quickly, let me ask you, are you someone who is more focused on reputation? Or are you someone who is more focused on character? Do you have two faces? A lot of people in church do. A lot of people in the world, they don't care, right? They're sinning, but at least they're honest. But in church, we have a lot of people who know that things are wrong, so they hide it from others doesn't stop them from doing it, but they do it and then they don't want anyone else to know. It's crazy how much fakeness there can be within the community of faith because we get so focused on just making sure we look good instead of pursuing actually being good. It's crazy how much legalism there is where you just focus on the behaviors. It's crazy how much hypocrisy judgmentalism there is because we don't actually care about right and wrong. We just want people to think we do. The question is, what about God? It'd be better if we were honest and everyone thought we were worse than if we lied and everyone thought we were great. What about God? And this is where the text takes us. Last point. Quickly now, the failure. The failure. You think the failure is the adultery, and that's partially true. You think the failure is the murder of Uriah. That's basically what he is. He doesn't keep, uh, he keeps his hands clean, kind of, but it's his murder. And that's partly true. But the real failure is something that is way deeper than the actions that David takes. You want to know how terrible, horrific things happen? The same way they always do. Look at verse 19. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling the news about the fighting to the king, then... If the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Say that. Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And a lot of people are like, what? What is this? What is this? Why does he talk about this? What is this message? What is Joab talking about? Well, Joab knows, one, that David, for some reason, wanted Uriah dead, one of his best. 
And it seems here, and this is in the text, I think for this reason, that Joab actually knew a little bit more than that. See, he sends a messenger to tell the king exactly what happened, and David's reputation is of a soft-hearted man, the kind of guy who would write poems about God and, and weep when his enemies are killed. So he thinks that maybe when Joab reports that they had this defeat and that some Israelites died, that the king will be mad and say, why were you so foolish? Why did you fight that way? What's wrong with Joab? So Joab tells the messenger, hey, if David gets mad, if David is concerned about why we did this, just tell them this story from the Old Testament and also say that Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Now, what is the story? It's about Abimelech. Who is Abimelech? He's the son of Jerubasheth. What is Jerubasheth's other name? You might not know this, but it's Gideon. Gideon is one of the judges from the book of Judges. He was somewhat of a hero. You might know about the story of the fleece. Anyway, Abimelech killed his brothers to consolidate his own power, the power of his father's house. And he seemed unstoppable. Right? He's just killing people and taking over things. But then he's fighting one day, and this random woman just drops the stone on him from a wall, and he dies. Now, why does he bring this up? Joab isn't preaching. He wants David to know, just in case David overreacts in some way or even tries to put the blame on Joab, he wants David to know in case David does something that Joab is aware of what happened. Because think about the story. You have a guy who killed his brothers and his downfall was a random woman. It's a coded message. See, I mean, if you think about this, it makes a lot of sense. It's not like David was totally secret. He's sending servants to do his dirty work for him. I mean, word is getting around in some way. And Joab is communicating subtly. I kind of know what's going on, but I'll keep your secret. I know what's going on. I don't think it's good. I think it's going to be bad for you, but I did what you asked. You don't have to worry about me. So what we're learning here is that basically Uriah is dead. Joab is going to keep his lips shut, even though he knows Bathsheba is now his wife. If you look at verse 26, Look at verse 22, though. We'll, we'll look at his reaction. David doesn't even get mad. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field. But we drove them back to the entrance of the gate and the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. And then he doesn't tell the story. He just says, and Uriah is dead also. And that's all David wanted to hear. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. Just tell him that's war. That's what happens. And it's crazy to see how hard-hearted David is here. To hear this. I mean, Joab actually overestimated how godly David might be. Isn't that crazy? Joab is not really a good guy. He actually thought David might care that some of these people died, but David is only thinking about himself. Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And there you go. This text tells terrible things, doesn't really dramatize it too much. But when you think about all these things that David did, it's terrible. David has done some of the worst things that anyone in the Bible has ever done. And yet, by the end of verse 26, you think that he got away with it. 
It worked. His plan was difficult, but it worked. Everyone's keeping quiet. Bathsheba is David's wife. People think that maybe he's a hero for marrying this widow and taking care of his friend's wife and making her a queen nonetheless. She has a son. Everything is neat and tidy. There's just one problem. Reality. Reality. What does the word of God call Bathsheba in verse 26? Not her name. It calls her the wife of Uriah. David covered up what he did as well as you can, but that doesn't erase who she was and what he did. See, the reason I brought up Nicholas Cruz in the beginning is because unlike so many of these shooters, he was actually brought in alive, okay? So people could actually talk to him and interrogate him, and that's what they did. Okay, so they arrested him the same day, a few hours later. They knew what he looked like. They found him. He was just wandering outside, and they brought him in, and he started acting strange right when they arrested him. Like he was maybe insane, and they thought maybe he would plead insanity. Now, he might be insane. You never know, right? Some people are. That's why you can plead insanity before a judge, but a lot of people who aren't insane also pretend to be insane. So they bring him in, and this is a really like important time where they're going to try to find out if he's lying or not. They're going to try to catch him in some inconsistencies. So the authorities, they bring him into a room. And while he's with the cops and while he's with people, he acts kind of crazy. He's kind of like looking around. He's like making motions with his hands. He's acting suicidal. He's like muttering to himself. They put him in the room, and then he stops. He doesn't know that there's a camera in the room. When he looks up and he sees the camera, he starts acting crazy again. This goes on for a while. And I saw a video of kind of an analysis from a psychologist about it. And they talked about how people pretend to be insane. And the thing is, you can't keep up the act too long or it's really hard to do. They would bring people in to talk to him and he would kind of act a certain way. They'd take him out and he'd remember the camera. So he'd try to act. But after, you know, a few minutes, you know, 10 minutes or so, he'd kind of forget about the camera and he'd start just like chilling, Right. So they were pretty sure that he was fake. And it's because the camera was always watching. He just forgot. See, the reason I, bring it, uh, I brought it up, why I bring it up, is because David, throughout this passage, he has forgotten something very, very important. He, he's caring a lot about, you know, how he can hide things from everyone around him, from the kingdom, from all the people who look up to him, but he's forgetting about the person who what? who looks down on him. Not one time in this chapter is God mentioned. Did you notice that? And that's on purpose to show us kind of David's headspace right now. He forgot about God. But if you look at the very last sentence of this chapter, what, is it, what does it say? It says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And that's how it ends. We started with a contrast. We end with a contrast. It displeased God. And literally in the Hebrew, it says that the thing that David had done, basically something like this, that the thing that David had done was evil in God's eyes. God saw all of it. And yeah, sure, he got away with it. Joab's not going to tell anybody. But God saw it all. And this means David has not gotten away with anything, really. And this is where everything has been heading Do we know, do we understand that God sees everything? That God knows everything? That there is no hiding because God is real. 
Do we know and do we care that God knows us? See, this is what it all comes down to. Do you care whether or not God is aware of the evil in your heart, even if no one else does? And you might say, but pastor, I'm not evil. I don't do crazy things. This is where Jesus enters the chat, okay? Matthew 5, verse 27. You need to hear these words in light of what I just said. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus said this, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. But it's not the same thing, you might say. Yeah, maybe not on a human level, it's not. But when it comes to the vertical level, you before God, Jesus, he sees right through us. It is the same thing. It's just as evil and wicked. Look at, or let me listen to Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, uh, to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Did you hear that? If you call someone you fool, you are liable to hell, the hell of fire. There are eternal consequences to your sin and to mine. See, the thing is, we want to look at people and categorize them as monsters. This person is a murderer. How could David do this? He's an adulterer. How could these people shoot up a school? That's so evil. And it is. I'm not downplaying that. But what Jesus is saying is he sees you and he sees me. He knows who we are. And he sees the same things in us. Yeah, okay, maybe I never took a gun into a school and fired a single shot. Maybe I never saw someone's wife bathing and stole her from myself. But have you lusted? Have you called someone a fool? Have you hated someone, your brother in your heart? The camera doesn't turn off just because you forgot that it exists. You see what I'm saying? God sees it all. And if you believe in God, you got to stop and consider that for a moment. If you don't, that's another thing. We could talk about it, and that's a separate conversation. But I know that most of you do, at least on paper. You believe in God. So let me ask you, if you are who you are, and he is who he is, why aren't you more scared? Why aren't you more scared? Matthew ten twenty eight, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It's crazy. This is more than life and death. This is heaven and hell. God sees the evil in our hearts. And it starts with us forgetting that God even exists. What signs are there in your life that you've forgotten God? What signs are there in your life that maybe you've forgotten that the camera is on even when you're alone? And do you gossip with your besties or whatever about people? And do you delete your browser history just in case someone is going to look? He knows you and he knows me. And yet how easy is it for us to not care at all? And then when terrible people do terrible things, we all wonder, how could this happen? That's crazy. We shouldn't have to wonder. Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And this applies to school shooters. It applies to corrupt kings and bad friends. And it applies to every single one of us, maybe. Is there a fear of God in this room? 
Now, we could end here because the chapter is done. It's kind of a cliffhanger, kind of a crazy place to end. But the story isn't done, so I think it's important for us that we take it a little further, especially because we are a Christian church. Listen to this, the words of Jesus, Luke 15. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. But he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But, strong contrast. And when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, listen to this, His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And there's more to the story, but we could stop there. God sees your sin. You got to understand this. But what we find out, the good news is God also sees you and he is a God of compassion. What was our scripture reading? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God saw us when we were still a long way off and he felt compassion, not because we were worthy, but because he is love. And we will never get that unless we know just what it is he sees in us first. We'll close here. Nicholas Cruz, he's not a good person. He, he started, uh, the sentencing started last month. And honestly, I didn't follow it too much, but I saw that it started in July. Um, and pretty much everyone agrees, not a good person. His insanity act was super flimsy, like many other violent shooters. His heart is just full of hate at the end of the day. That's why he did it. But like I said, what makes Parkland different than so many of these other things we hear about in the news is that he didn't die in the shooting. He is still alive for now. So for us, we couldn't just take the videos and the posts and all of that and turn them into a caricature, a monster who is far off. This is a person who is right here. And I happened to click on this article about him, but also about his brother. And the thing is, they were both adopted into a family from different parents, but they didn't have families. They were adopted, and their adoptive father died tragically from a heart attack when they were young. So that already set them off kind of on a bad foot. And their mother died while they were still in high school. And now Zach Cruz, Nicholas's brother, is infamous, right? The article's kind of about how he even got arrested for walking around the school because he just wanted to take in what happened with his brother. Um, But he's infamous for what his brother did. And it struck me what he said in the article. This is what he said. He said, I always carry it with me every day. There is no forgetting. I'm stuck between loving him and hating him because of what he did. And the thing is, in the article, people are so shocked. Like, okay, of course you're going to hate him, right? He's a monster, But people are shocked that he would say, even now on the record, that he loves his brother. But Zach says, what do you mean? He's my brother. I told him I'd always have his back. Dude, I'm more emotional than James and Eric. Sorry, you'll have to get used to it. Um, But that's it. That's it. At least a little bit. Okay, it doesn't matter about Zach Cruz and Nicholas Cruz. Put that away. But it's an analogy. Just think about how it reflects just a little bit 
of what God is doing for us in the gospel. Not to downplay the evil of evil, not in the slightest. And not to say Zach is a perfect person or compare him to Jesus or anything like that. But we have to understand this, that God is a God who hates what we do. He sees our sin. He knows everything about us, good and bad, but mostly bad. And yet he's also the God who saw us when we were far off. And this is what salvation is. This is where all transformation starts. Do you see? This is where gospel-centered, gospel-centered ministry really works. I mean, this is how everything goes in Christianity. This is how we can forgive people. This is how we can be humble with people who are imperfect. This is how we can be honest about our faults and failings before others. This is how we can be different because we know who we are and we know who he is. Will you bow your heads with me? I'm going to give you a second. I know we're running a little late, but I'm going to give you a second to pray on your own. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if I know or the pastors know what you've done or what you're struggling with, what bad things are inside of you, what's sin. But God knows. And the truth is God hates it and there is wrath against that sin. At least that's what should be. But in Jesus Christ, we have an opportunity to turn back, to repent. And there is no one alive who is beyond repentance. Some people might not repent. But right now is your opportunity to do so. Lord, you are a holy God. And we are sinners. We are wretches on our own. We failed you in so many ways, and we still do. And yet we rest in the hope of the love of God in Jesus Christ. As we consider our great sin, it just helps us to understand more your great love and mercy and grace. How amazing your grace is. And I pray, God, that we would stop faking that we would stop caring so much about what others think and care more about what you think. And I pray, God, that you would transform us from this place, this place of honesty with you, this place of repentance, and this place of really feeling like we got nothing. Our only hope is you. Lord, I pray that you would do a work in this church and in our hearts. We know we can't do it on our own. So we pray these things in the name of your Son, who has done everything for us, Jesus Christ. Amen.